Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. My guest today is Richard Epstein, the James Parker Hall Distinguished Service Professor of Law at the University of Chicago, and the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution. His latest book is Overdose, How Excessive Government Regulation Stifles Pharmaceutical Innovation, from Yale University Press. Richard, welcome back to EconTalk. Oh, it's very nice to be here. Let's start off with a discussion of property rights generally, and patents in particular, and how they apply to the pharmaceutical industry. What's the case for for patents? Well, I, I think if you want to start off with the question of property rights generally, you sort of ask the question more generically, which is, what's the case for private property altogether? And there are many economists, I think, who used to say that the only good resources are those which are subject to private ownership. But it seems pretty clear that when you look at the way in which the physical world is outlined and organized, we have a kind of a stable equilibrium between common property, that is property to which everybody has access, but which on which their behavior is governed by rules, and private property, which is subject to exclusive ownership. And the question is, well, why do you need both forms of property? Why can't you just do with one? I think the explanation really starts in some sense from geometry, which is that if you're trying to figure out how you get from place to place, you need long and skinny kinds of things. If you're trying to figure out how you build factories or farmland, you need kind of square areas. If you had a series of roads that were entirely private, there's going to be a real problem in figuring out how you assemble them, so you kind of need the eminent domain power. And there is also the real touchy question of how it is that you manage to moderate and to control access. So the usual solution is that everybody goes on the roads from their own private property, subject to regulation about how they go there. And in more recent times, there's some really very strong indications that if we price the way in which people use the common access facilities, we can vastly increase its carrier capacity. So it's not as though markets disappear in the way in which you talk about the public property. Now, public property has one virtue and one great limitation. The virtue is that everybody can get there and go back and forth. The limitation about public property, like roads, for example, or beaches, is that essentially they're single-use kinds of operations, and nobody can make a really intensive use of a particular piece of public property. It's not as though you can build your skyscraper in the middle of I-94. Uh, private property has exactly the opposite features. By virtue of the fact that you know you have access to the network so you can sell your goods, you can now really make very intensive investments knowing that anything that you put in today you'll be able to take back tomorrow. And so the, the basic intuition is you get somebody who owns a bit of property, makes an investment in it, he gets the return, and it also profits everybody else because when they enter into bargains with him, leases, licenses, or whatever, uh, they also make a profit as well. So that you need to have essentially both systems. The public property side allows for communications, transportation, and trade. And the private property side allows you to create the assets and the services which are worth transporting, worth commuting, commuting with, and worth trading. Now, when you go to intellectual property, it's really the same kind of thing. We need to have a public domain, as it's sometimes called there, and we need to have private property. So essentially, the first notion of all areas of intellectual property, and there's six of them basically, but the key ones for these purposes are copyrights, patents, trade secrets, um, and trademarks, and then there's some other kinds of stuff on the side. But just concentrating on those, uh, everybody starts with the same basic intuition, which is that you cannot get a trade name over a common word. You can't copyright it. You can't patent it. Uh, you can't make it into a trade secret uh, because we have to be able to have language that allows us to communicate back and forth between people. And so that the first proposition is uh, you can't patent the words good morning unless they become a real trademark like here's Johnny. And that uh, you can't patent the, or copyright the Pythagorean theorem because everybody else is going to do mathematics. But on the other hand, if you, once you have this sort of common domain, then the question is, how are you going to get people to make really substantial investments 
in particular areas that rely on this general culture of knowledge and information. And that's not easy to do. Uh, one thing you can try to do is to give them rewards. You make them professors at universities. You give them Nobel Prizes. And that might work for certain people, but if you really think that the next great computer is going to come in somebody's garage, you can't give a professor ship to you know, 9,000 kids who are starting out in garages, 8,900 of whom are likely to fail, at least in their initial venture. And so what we have to do is to have another set of incentives. And what the patent law is designed to do, and to some extent in computers and certain kinds of things, the copyright law, the trade secret law is designed to do, is to create the same dynamic with respect to ideas that you create with land. People who know that they have exclusive rights to these things will be prepared to invest much more in order to create them. They benefit to the extent that they can commercialize them, and the rest of us benefit to the extent that we can buy and sell the kinds of things that they give to us, making a profit. That is, there's something known as consumer surplus, which means that if I pay $10 for a pill which is going to save my life, I may benefit $100 in the particular pill case, getting a surplus of 90 and intellectual property, therefore, works very much as does physical property. You have both the common domain aspects, like the highways, and then you've got the private stuff. But there's a difference. Um, essentially, with land, you could, you could plant your seed or you could eat your seed. You can't do both. With information, there's a way to both use it and to disseminate it. So what happens is virtually every legal system believes that with respect to copyrights and patents, they ought to be of some limited duration. Indeed, in the United States, the Constitution is so configured that you can only grant patents or copyrights for limited periods of time. And the issue is how long should those times be before an invention slips into the public domain so that everybody can use it. And the solution that we've reached today, which in most cases works pretty well, is that you get basically 20 years for what they call a utility patent, which would cover most pharmaceuticals. But here the plot starts to thicken. When you're dealing with pharmaceuticals, the patents have two characteristics that are really worth noting. One is that if you make a good new molecular entity, uh, this thing will probably cost you a billion dollars or more to make and to test before you can market it. But if it really hits, say like Lipitor, you can sell 13 or 14 billion dollars of this stuff in the course of a single year, a very large percentage of which is profit. So that, you know, you can see that patents can have huge values for limited time. And if you don't have very clear rules that protect them so that others can poach or can use the device, you can take $14 billion and turn it into $14 million more quickly than you could say Jack Spratt. So you have to be able to give strong protections, usually by way of an injunction, during the life of the patent, which prevents other people from making the argument for making the device or the invention of the drug and then selling it off um, at a low price and paying you some kind of a, a license fee, which they will determine through the courts. But with pharma, there's another problem which makes it very difficult, which is the patent only gives you a license to sell that's exclusive unto you. It does not, of course, exempt you from FDA regulations. Indeed, it's exactly the opposite. Nobody will spend the fortune taking a generic product through the FDA knowing that once it's approved, other people will be able to piggyback on their work and get it into the marketplace as well. So you have to get your patent first before you go through the approval process. And that approval process takes a very long time, and it's unfortunately getting longer. So it could be eight or ten years between the time that you figure out how to fabricate the patent and get it, work through all the animal studies, the human studies, the clinical trials, and so forth, and finally get your FDA licenses. In 1984, we passed a statute with a funny-sounding name that I can never remember called the Hatch-Waxman Act, colloquially, which essentially gives you patent extensions of up to two and a half years for any five years, that up to five years when you are essentially in the patent process. So for every two days that you are basically tied up in the FDA, you'll get one day at the end of the term. But the longer the process drags on, the less effective uh, the, the Hatch-Waxman extensions turn out to be. So what you do is you're faced with a situation in which there's a real squeeze. The duration of the patents that you get in the pharmaceutical industry have had effectively shorter and shorter market lives. They're now around eight or nine years for many drugs. And at the same time, you've got higher and higher costs in order to put these things through. The clinical trials are not cheap. And in addition, although many commentators don't seem to understand it, there's a very heavy cost of capital 
which you have to incur in order to invest in these drugs, some of which will turn out to be belly up. The uh, Pfizer company tried to put forward a new cholesterol pill, and they pulled the plug on the stuff after all the clinical trials turned out bad, and they're going to get nothing on an investment in which they had sunk a billion dollars or more. So, I mean, you know, this is not an easy kind of business, and it's not the kind of thing in which there's a low volatility with respect to risk, so that the interest rates for loans have to reflect all of that. And this patent system is perilous. It has worked amazingly well, um, even with all these handicaps, but it has come under attack today. Well, that's a fantastic summary of the, of the state of, of the economics and legal environment that, that medicine's being, uh, the innovation in medicine is taking place. Uh, let me just make one point on the flip side <clears throat> and, and add a, a bit about the incentives that I, I think are often ignored. The, the, the purpose of the patent is to create the incentive of profit. Uh, the profits themselves are not the source of the funds that drug companies use to look for new things. They could be and they can be, but we don't, as a public policy matter, don't offer a patent as a way to make sure that pharmaceutical companies can generate enough money to fund R&D. The economics, the intuition is, is that the rewards of the patent down the road create the incentive to spend the R&D money today. Yes, look, the key feature to understand about the patent system is that it's centralized in one sense, which is important, but more importantly, it's decentralized in another. It's centralized in the fact that there are no ways that you can put four stakes in the ground and say, this patent is mine. So there has to be what is known as a patent office, where you file the patents, they're examined for their validity, and then you draft your claim in such a way as to stake the molecules that happen to be under protection. And that has to be a centralized function in order to give notice to the world. But the genius is the question of what patents are filed by what individuals after what kind of investment decisions are always made privately. So that what happens is the industrial choices are not made by a government form of industrial policy, Rather, what they've done is made by individual entrepreneurs that make that trade-off. And to put your point in a slightly different fashion, if somebody doesn't have a dime of profits from previous pharmaceutical inventions, they can still scrape together venture capital from one source or another and put a new drug on the market. That is, new entry is always possible into this. And in fact, the system even works better than is sometimes thought, because while people often talk about the word patent, a more technically accurate word is the right to exclude others from the use of your patented invention. And why is this not semantics? Because a monopoly means that there's no close substitutes. And it turns out when you start to deal with patents, if you patent one drug, somebody could find a distinct clinical entity which operates in roughly the same way as your own with a slightly different mechanism. And the two of you are now competitors, each of you working off of your own patent. Just the way two beer companies, which operate in different factories and make beer with slightly different flavors, are in competition with each other, even though they're not perfect substitutes. So the system turns out to be highly advantageous. And as best I can tell, I mean, I've done some calculations on this, and other people like Professor Nordhaus at Yale have done them as well. And the basic kind of intuition that you come up with is that if somebody creates, say, a billion dollars in social surplus from a new patent, probably the entrepreneur under the current system with strong property rights gets to keep maybe between 10 and 25% of that total, depending on what your various assumptions are with the way in which the market will operate. Well, this is the best deal in the history of the world for the American people, right? I mean, if you could find out a way to sit back and get three-fourths of the surplus garnered from other people's labors, my Lord, you should want to have as much of this stuff going on as possible. And the effort to become greedy and to say that, well, we'd rather have 100% of the surplus, we'll give you a dime here or there, what happens is you will kill the goose that lays the golden egg. And I think one of the issues, one way to phrase the, the policy issue we face is how much incentive do we want to give pharmaceutical companies to continue to innovate? A lot of people say, well, the drugs are so expensive, let's, let's limit the, the prices of them. As a result, pharmaceutical companies will have a lower profit, but they'll still have an incentive to innovate. Of course they will. It just won't be as large. Yeah, what they will do is they will stop going after exotic diseases. They will stop going into new paths, and they will essentially kill all those projects that don't have the higher rate of return. Then you get this odd political dynamic. Once they do that, 
the actual new stuff that comes on will get higher rates of return because that's the only projects that make sense. And then people say they're still excessive, and they'll go through the cycle again. Well, I mean, give... I, I think what one has to remember is the insights which are yeah, applicable from the days of Adam Smith and more so today is the only way people get wealthy in a capitalist or indeed any society is if other people get wealthy. There's not a way in which you're going to make money in this world or gain happiness or prosperity by making sure that you beggar everybody else. And so this idea that redistribution is going to be a sustainable strategy in the long run with respect to innovation is a massive delusion, which has the capability of shutting down entire social systems. And it's really quite extraordinary that most of the people who are opposed to the current structure of the pharmaceutical industry really believe that the FDA or the National Institutes of Health or the government itself should do a kind of a massive industrial policy to decide which particular pathways we should go down in order to decide what pharmaceutical compounds we invest in and which ones we do not. That's always a losing strategy. Decentralized information will trump centralized control with all of its bureaucratic sluggishness every time out of the box. And so can... the current policy is, I think, appropriate. There are other industries for which patents do create problems. And let me – is it okay, Russ, if I just mention one of them for a bit? Absolutely. We'll um, come back to pharmaceuticals in a minute. Yeah, I mean, there is a big debate between some software companies on the one hand and some pharmaceutical companies on the other as to whether or not if somebody invades your patent, um, you're entitled to shut them down. And the pharmaceutical people realize that when you have a very few patents which have enormous value, that unless you could shut them down, everybody will start to poach, and the whole system will fall to pieces. So they hate compulsory licenses, and they love injunctions. The software people are much more ambivalent. You know, you take a case in which somebody puts out, a company like Microsoft uh, or Macintosh, they put out a new program which has a couple million lines of code. Um, their basic attitude is, we have done this, and we are sure that we have managed to infringe somebody's patents along the way. Why? Well, the current rule on infringement in patents is you don't have to prove that there was conscious duplication of copying. That's the copyright rule. It's not the patent rule. And when you've got so many patents out there on so many lines of code with respect to so many sub-applications, and you're putting together 10,000 of them, or 100,000 of them, you're sure that one of them has probably been invented by somebody else and your engineers didn't find it. It's usually pretty easy to invent around a patent like that once it's been discovered, but in the meantime, you've managed to ship this stuff. And the question is whether or not they should be able to call back the units that have been shipped or prevent you from shipping any more until you buy them off or redo the code. And their attitude is, this is just nuisance and harassment, and under these circumstances, paying a royalty, if that's what it takes before you invent around it, is a much more efficient solution. And they're right with respect to that configuration. Even with respect to land, you would never want to stop the construction of a skyscraper, which was built on the small plots assembled from 150 or 200 different landowners, because right in the middle there's one guy who owns a square foot of land, uh, which somehow or other managed to escape detection, and he wasn't bought out. Uh, the encroachment remedy is fine. It's between two neighbors. It's not fine when you have this little checkerboard and there's one square which has not been purchased. So figuring out how you draft a rule which captures that intuition is very hard. And when they tried a couple of years ago in Congress, the whole thing blew up and the thing then went back to the courts. And there's a lot of legal disputes that have happened in the last year or so, which have been, by and large, relatively propitious for the software industry, but by and large, they've been relatively ominous, although have yet to be applied with respect to farmers. But with respect to pharmaceuticals, at least, uh, you're not talking about lots of small patents that work in combination. You're talking about very big patents for single molecules that have immense value, and those things should be treated just like skyscrapers. Keep off unless you get my permission to come in. That's a very interesting uh, differences between those in terms of the, the cost of adjustment and, mm -hmm. and the cost of, of preemptive uh, detection. Well, you know, even with respect to the old land cases on inheritance, the, the system of primogenitor, which says we give all the land to the eldest son and then maybe put a mortgage or a charge, as they used to call it, on the land to pay off the younger kid's education, was done in the recognition that if you over three generations, take a large plot of land and divide it into quarters and then into quarters again, what you do is you have large numbers of unusable plots and a bunch of relatives who don't love each other squabbling over how it ought to be developed jointly. 
Um, and that's the intuition that one's trying to capture, which is that small, broken things don't work well if all of them have to combine. But paradoxically, if you've got ten guys, each of whom has a viable factory, the last thing you want those guys to do is to fix prices, because at this point it becomes a monopoly. And finding out how you draw the line in ways that you can enforce judicially is not easy to do. But the intuitions, I think, are very, very clear that we don't like cartels. But on the other hand, we don't like holdups with respect to the assembly problem. And making sure that the assembly problem is solved without creating the cartel is a challenge with respect to oil and gas, with respect to railroads, with respect to land and rivers. It is also a challenge in the um, intellectual property arena as well. Let's go back to pharmaceuticals. I, sure. I want to raise two examples that I think work in the opposite direction of uh, making the pharmaceutical business uh, more profitable than it otherwise would be and, and suggest that maybe we've encouraged too much innovation there, and I want to get your reaction okay. to it. Uh, there are points I don't hear talked about very often. Uh, it's true that the existence of the high costs of uh, efficacy and safety that the FDA imposes uh, shortens that patent life that you were talking about earlier. So the, the statutory limit is 20, but the clock starts ticking in before you've gotten the drug approved. Uh, the Hatch-Waxman, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So extends the effective it, life is around eight or nine it years. Extends it a little bit, but it's not 20. It's more like eight or nine. So yeah. so basically, we've we've cut the the in, the incentives in half there. But there are a couple factors working on the other side over time that have expanded the profitability of of uh, the pharmaceutical industry and perhaps uh, unproductively. So, for example, the amount of third-party payment in the United States has gone up dramatically uh, over the last uh, 50 years, unfortunately. As a result of the as a, so, as a result, fewer and fewer people are making their decisions with their own money. Uh, decisions people make about what drugs to take have made um, or paid for by other people, either the government or insurers. And I'm sure you and I agree that we don't want the government using that purchasing power to then argue down prices and negotiate lower prices and take away the profitability uh, of the drugs. But on the other hand, that lack of personal responsibility for the decision of what to buy has certainly made uh, drug profits higher than they otherwise would be. Well, it's kind of complicated at this because, in fact, the let me give you but one illustration. There is right now a whole series of programs having to do with Medicaid where just this problem is faced, where you have a huge, almost 100% subsidy for purchase. And what the government has come in and has demanded and has received um, lower prices in exchange for that, <clears throat> um, lower prices in exchange for the guaranteed market precisely to sort of offset the uh, problem that you get with excessive demand. So, I mean, there is no question that the issue is well understood, and at least in certain kinds of markets, it is it is done against. The other thing, of course, to understand is that the what happens with the purchase is that the money is not being paid by the individuals today. And in response to this, what happens is many of the insurance companies put up their own formularies or their Correct. own management plans. There and what they back. do is they list and limit the kinds of drugs that you can purchase. Correct. And what they then do is they also negotiate prices based upon bulk sales. And what happens is it's sometimes really quite ferocious is you get two drugs that are thought to be a kind of substitute for one another. So big HMO comes along and it says to company A, if you want us to list your statin, your sort of heart control drug, your cholesterol drug, you've got to give us this price or we'll go to the other guy and then you play them off against one another. So that what you can say about the situation is the third-party payers do, in effect, lower prices in some markets to the extent that they make mass purchases. And then what you do is you create a real tension uh, between the ability of HMOs to swap back and forth within classes of drugs and the retail pharmacists who don't have that power because they have to carry the full formulary. And so what you look at the prices in the drug industry, what is so characteristic of them is that it seems like no two people pay the same price because the way in which all these forces work. That is, in the private sector, if the insurance guys are going to be picking up the bill, 
They understand the externality you're talking about. I spend your money, I'm going to spend lots of it. And so what they do is they institute controls privately, and that creates a different set of frictions. This market will never work extremely well in the sense that the market for wheat will because of one characteristic, which I think everybody ought to know. Um, and I like to put it as follows. It costs you a billion dollars to make the first pill. It costs you three dollars to make the second one. And so everybody says, I'll buy pills two through <laughs> N. Sure. Nobody wants to buy that first one. Right? That's right. Well, you don't buy the first one, you don't get the second one. So what happens is you can't have what they call marginal cost pricing. Since you know no one's going to pay the full marginal cost for the first pill, you've got to lower that price, which means that you have to charge everybody else down the road somewhat more than marginal cost in order to recoup the front-end thing. And that's and, what the that's the that the patent creates that opportunity. Yes, it keeps and then up. other patents then reduce the gap, but of course not entirely because remember the second guy's coming with a patent that also costs him a billion dollars. He's faced with exactly the same problem, and so they know the first guy knows that the second guy is not going to be able to price at marginal cost either. So he can now raise this thing, but there's no unique allocation of the initial billion dollars over the next hundred million users, and, and so there's a huge battle. And let me mention to you one of the ways in which it creates tensions is when we sell drugs in the United States, it's relatively unregulated market on the price dimension. So you get all of these bargaining games. Want to sell them in Canada or in England or in Germany, you often face state monopolies. And they say, you know, we know what the marginal cost of right. this drug is. You want to sell in Canada, uh, what you have to do is give us a very attractive price. And oh, by the way, if you don't, we, you know, we might allow or authorize a generic manufacturer to make that drug and give you some kind of a measly license fee. So what you do is you get differential pricing across nations. Right. Now, that's an interesting issue, and it, and it raises an issue we might come back to, which is this issue of reimportation. That's exactly right. But, and it's particularly important when you're comparing uh, – it's more uh, dramatic when you're looking at Brazil or Costa Rica – uh, and compared to Germany. But I, I yeah, um, what happens is there's also a, a huge counterfeit risk that comes. Correct. Uh, the basic problem here is that the longer the supply chain, the greater the chinks in the armor. And you may think you're getting a drug from Canada, but you have no idea where that's been made because what happens in all of these importation markets is that the domestic consumption is about one twentieth or one one hundredth of what the export market to the United States would be. And the locals just don't want to run inspections for drugs that are not going to be used by local people. And the Canadians have already announced they won't inspect drugs that are going to the United States. Uh, we've already had in Brazil horrific cases. Uh, I remember hearing once from somebody at Abbott Laboratories that one of the forms of counterfeiting of their drugs that took place in Brazil was to thin them dilute them. Sure. So you have an anesthetic and somebody's under the knife and you think they're out for an hour and 30 minutes later they wake up. The problem is you haven't sewn them up. I Oops. mean, you know, these things can really happen and uh, when one realizes the number of ways in which you could corrupt drugs, um, you will get very nervous about the extension of the supply lines and every FDA commissioner, um, regardless of party or affiliation, has refused to, as it were, give a seal of approval against these kinds of issues coming from overseas. Yeah, but now, some, some of, that, of it's just labeling issues, but some of it is, in fact, you know, purity issues. Yeah, but some of that's uh, scare tactics to keep their um, their own monopoly in place of certifying safety. Um, the, the FDA? I mean, think about it this way. If the FDA didn't exist, which is always an interesting thing to contemplate because yeah. it opens up the mind to a, a world of, of different incentives. Yeah. If the FDA didn't exist... Uh, a lot of people would say, well, then, then the drug companies would have an incentive to dilute their drugs and sell you drugs that didn't work right and, and cheat, and it wouldn't monitor safety. No, no, no. They would not have that at all. Right. Of course not. Um, They'd the have question an incentive. is, what would they do? The answer is they would create their own underwriting laboratories sure. or FDA. And they have a brand name to protect. They'd obviously have a huge cost if they sold drugs that didn't work and or they had side effects. Put, and what they knew, I mean, what all these companies do on those issues is if they really think that there's a certification issue, they get to underwriting, underwriting laboratories. I mean, I, I certainly think that the whole FDA game of, of insisting that it and only it can deal with the, the purification issue is, is somewhat overdrawn. But let me put it to you this way. Within the current framework, since you, you can't get out of the FDA, the one thing that it might do sensibly is on the purification side. That's true. And to the extent that they become nervous about this issue. I don't think it's turf protection. 
in the same way it is with respect to warnings and with respect but why to do we worry why do we worry about counterfeit drugs coming in from Canada or impure diluted drugs coming in from Canada any more than we'd worry about them coming in from Long Island I don't understand uh, because what happens is the supply chains are longer and the companies therefore have less control of what goes on true but it's, and, and it's a, they, I mean I'm not telling you uh, here's I'm going to give you something at least when I speak to people at the drug companies they are frightened to death of the counterfeiting issue. I mean, they impress oh, sure. on me over and over again uh, that this is something for which they are very, very uneasy. Uh, they have also, there's another problem with counterfeiting. You need to really use coercive methods to stop it. You have to seize drugs. You have to destroy them. You have to start to arrest people. And to the extent that it becomes a quasi-criminal situation, it's very different. That is, it's very easy for a drug company, almost without difficulty, to maintain that the products that it produces and sells under its own brands are safe. But it is a huge problem when you start having trademark deception in which other companies basically use your mark, put this stuff out there, and make it almost impossible for consumers to distinguish the fake from the real. At that point, it becomes a criminal offense and the state gets involved. So, you know, small government as I am, I, I understand where they are coming from, because what happens is they cannot protect themselves as you can in certain cases simply by making sure that they have better assembly lines and better ingredients. They have to prevent them to protect themselves against a set of rogues who will destroy the confidence in their brand. And that tends to get yourself into criminal action. Yeah, and absolutely. In every market that I'm aware of, uh, the, the trade secret expropriation and the trade name corruption stuff has been very high on the list. And interestingly enough, although... On drug pricing, the Congress has generally tended to be hostile to the pharmaceutical industry. When you get a slightly broader constituency of American companies who are worried about trade name and trade secret infringements and theft and so forth, uh, Congress has responded with fairly tough property rights protections. Um, there are statutes, three or four of them, on, on this, on, on copyright price, pri- you know, piracy and so forth. So it's a very complicated domain. The, um, I, my view about it is, if the FDA wants to guarantee and to seize counterfeit goods, God bless. If they want to certify, the drug companies don't get particularly upset about all this. What they worry about are not the purity issues. They worry about the warning issues and the testing issues and the banning issues. And so in terms of order of magnitude, the the FDA is, is basically working at 70% of social efficiency on the contamination and corruption issues, and it's working at 5% efficiency when it starts coming to banning drugs. And so that's the bigger problem for what they do, and that's where I would want um, to focus the attention. Well, let's focus our attention on it. But I, first, I just want to go back to one economics point you made a few minutes ago. Okay, sure. You're talking about uh, the competition that takes place when – uh, insurance companies negotiate and and try to drive a hard bargain. Mm-hmm. Most of those cases, I think, correct me if I'm wrong. Most of those cases, and the use of generics as well, uh, are in, in drugs that are post patent after they, their patent life has run out. Obviously, it's kind of a technological issue. There are some patented drugs that have patented competitors. Uh, Celebrex and Vioxx being dramatic examples, yeah. we'll, we'll turn to in a minute. Where, you know, like you said before, there's, there you can tw- tweak the molecule a little bit, get a similar effect, and even though you've got a patent, you certainly don't have a monopoly. That's right. Uh, but, but I assume that for many drugs that that is the case. Well, it the, varies all over the lot, but the uh, the basic truism is, if you think about it for a second, if you're talking about mass markets like those for blood pressure, or diabetes, yes, or something cholesterol. One guy gets in there, everybody else is going to say, hey, you know, half of a huge market is better than all of a tiny one. And so the markets which tend to have the most variations are the ones that tend to have the largest consumer demand, which is a nice feature. So yeah, no, that's probably back there. Uh, the other thing that's interesting, I mean, several of my colleagues at the University of Chicago, uh, Tom Phillipson and Darius Bagdakwala, have done a study, and one of the things that happens is oftentimes the sale of drugs goes down in absolute units when they become generic, which really puzzles them and puzzles me. But what happens is if you don't have a brand name, it's harder to sell it. 
And if there are 11 guys making it, nobody wants to advertise it. So the thing tends to disappear from consciousness. Well, you also Whereas have... the brand stuff, they push very, very hard. So ironically, one of the things you could argue respectably now is that lengthening the patent term will actually help consumers in addition to producers by making sure that somebody's keeping that drug in everybody's face. Well, I haven't seen that study, but you would have to take account of the fact I mean, the standard intuition there would be that because it becomes generic, the price will drop. Yes, it does. But, of course, if, if most of the payments are being made third-party, that price drop isn't as effective. It's less... effective, and also if it turns out that people forget about the drug or they can't find out about it because people won't advertise, they're there. There's also another effect which is uncertain, is that um, the only thing that is sort of bioequivalent in a generic drug is, in fact, the operative compound. They also have to be packed with various kinds of filler and dispensed and manufactured. Some of these drugs are terrific, but some of them are really rather crummy um, in just in terms of their physical layout so that they are not necessarily going to do as well in the marketplace as the, as the, um, as the branded drugs, which retain some portion of their market even after these things go off. Not yet. I find it remarkable that people pretend and contend that uh, generics are, quote, the same as a patented drug. It's... Um they're not, as you say. They may not have the same uh, auxiliary features. They may not have the same delivery system or as effective a delivery system. They may not be as reliable in terms of shelf life. And all yep. the incentives that are there for the patented drug maker to be careful aren't necessarily there for the uh, generic producer. And I, I've never understood this idea that they're, quote, identical. They're not well, identical. They're not. I mean, they may be close, but they're not identical. Well, it also there's variations. In some of the companies, evidently, they're very close to identical. In others, it's much weaker, and you have to shop a generic to be careful. Um, it's just uh, what it is is it adds an additional set of complexities into the market. And if people perceive this on the ground, it means that their willingness to shift will be correspondingly reduced because it's not getting the same product for a lower price. It's getting an inferior product for a lower price, and you've got to worry about whether you're in that portion of the distribution or not. And then there's the lemons problem. If you know that there's an issue out there and you're not quite sure which of these generics are good and which of them are not, and generic brands are very weak because they can't spend the money on it, it becomes a much more serious thing. Now, one of the advantages of HMOs is that they presumably can go into the generic market and and pick out the good from the bad guys and make sure that they they get the right kinds of supply. Uh, but it is interesting the the volume of generic drugs is very high, but the percentage of total sales in dollar terms is still rather low. It's it's probably less than twenty percent, I think, of the total market. So it is a very complicated market, and, and the more you understand the complexities the more you realize that an effort to sort of have real ham-handed price regulations of one kind or another is sure to interfere with an op- uh, uh, the operation of a market whose mechanisms you don't fully understand. So this, this is not like trying to figure out how you price number two grain or, or whole wheat or something of the sort. This is a much more difficult, much more complicated market to work in. And what we can say is that uh, the pipelines are not full. That is... Right now, if you start looking around and you're trying to figure out which of the big pharmaceutical companies are uh, bursting with great new ideas and have their stocks run up in anticipation of gain, there just aren't that many. Um, and you know, the Pfizer situation where they laid off 7,000 people or so in the last couple of months um, is emblematic of a world in which uh, one is not confident that we'll be able to duplicate in the future what we've been able to do in the past. Now, part of it is it's just harder to constantly push the envelope technically. There are no easy fixes anymore. But part of it is the hostile regulatory environment. And, you know, there's no way that any system should create subsidies simply because work is difficult. I think we both agree on that. But you certainly don't want to make difficult work impossible by creating all sorts of barriers to entry, which a lot of this stuff turns out to do. I mean, you know, the, the number of attacks on the industry is not just patents. It's not just FDA stuff. There are real prohibitions on the marketing. And the liability system for some of these common drugs um, is essentially a real zoo in many of these cases because there's never a quarrel in these cases with the purity of the drug or the identification of the drug. It's rather the assumption that anything the FDA says about a warning is always a minimum and never an optimum so that lawyers are free to argue that even stronger warnings should have been given always after the fact when perhaps the opposite is true, that the FDA warnings are too stringent in some cases, 
and there are certain risk-benefit trade-offs that people would be better making with independent information, which is, of course, one reason, Russell, why so many people just don't bother with FDA labels. They ask their doctor, they go to some independent site. I mean, you read some of these things, and you read all the negative indications. You say, why would I ever touch this? Um, and you don't want to do that. Yeah, I always, I always love the, uh, the ads, and I, they don't do this to be humorous, uh, and it's certainly um, tragicomic at best, but they... They'll talk about some beautiful drug that that has this wonderful effect on your lifestyle. You know, maybe it lets you uh, go outside more often because it it's for people with with asthma or hay fever. Mm-hmm. And this beautiful piano music is playing in the background. The end. At the end, you know, a fast talking uh, yeah. announcer lists all the possible complications. Possible complications include death, you know, et cetera. And it's it's gruesome. Uh, and yet the piano music keeps playing. I've always found that a bit strange. Well, it is. I mean, because, you know, they, they feel a, a, there's either a, a legal requirement or certainly a liability risk. If you tout the good stuff in any given media, you've got to expose people to the bad stuff. Uh, and that creates immense complications because there's no very convenient way in which to do warnings on the air, right? I mean, they're long, Correct. they're convoluted, and so forth. So what you do is you get the speed readers out there, yep. and therefore everybody just completely discounts it. Overwarning is a serious problem. Yeah, no, that's a big issue, I agree. Um, let, let's turn to the FDA, which yeah. uh, you mentioned a minute ago, and talking about its social efficiency being 5%. Uh, knowing uh, your writing in, in the book Overdose that we're talking about and, and your general philosophical outlook, I, I assume you mean it's relatively ineffective because it over-regulates, and yet many have argued in the last couple of years that the FDA needs to get more teeth, be tougher, take more drug, dangerous drugs off the market. Mm-hmm. So talk about the um, the issues there. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, there's basically a, a kind of an underlying sort of economic insight which is often forgotten about dealing with uncertainty. And that's the insight which says that whenever you have to make judgments on what to use or what to take, there are two kinds of error. One of them is using something which ought not to be used, call that type 1 error. And the other one is not using something that ought to be used, which is type 2 error. And, you know, when you start looking at the way in which the politicians think about this, the visible error is a type 1. Somebody takes a drug, gets an adverse uh, effect of some kind or another, and everybody says he should not have used it. Now, you can stop all type 1 errors of, of improper use by banning all drugs. Right? I mean, at that point, nobody will ever die from an overdose because there will be no drugs out there whatsoever. But people will die of underlying conditions. So the issue is how far do you back off? And, and I think most people would hope to have a situation in which they would try to minimize the sum of the two errors so that if you could manage to reduce the error of of delay from a drug by 10, you're willing to take nine units of additional risk from using the drug. And you'd like to get yourself into equilibrium. The FDA makes it very difficult to do that. Uh, what they say, in effect, is once the risks reach a certain magnitude, you know, we're going to really study this very hard. We're going to delay its introduction. We're going to give very stringent warnings, and we may even ban the drug. Uh, but what happens is when you do that, all of these things are costly. Um, you give a high warning on something, and for somebody for whom it's beneficial, they're frightened away. That's not a good thing. Uh, better that they should have a 20% chance of dying from a drug than a 40% chance of dying from some underlying condition. And they can figure that out very well, so you've got to get that right. And then delay is just an enormous cost, um, because not only does it reduce the effect of patent life and shorten innovation, but on the other end, if you're a consumer, and this is the drug that's going to help somebody two years from now, and you're not going to live two years unless you get it today, the delay means that you're having to go with inferior treatments of one kind or another. And, and we know how people respond to this. There has been recently, and it has backfired, uh, the Democrats have pushed the matchless efficiency of the veterans associations in trying to deal with the VA hospitals, right? Um, trying to deal with the things by keeping price down. Well, it turns out the way they keep the price down is they don't let any new drug onto the formulary until it's been out there for two or three years, something like that. Well, the reaction of people who have serious condition is, get me out of this plan. I'd rather pay a little bit more money and get a company that's going to give me a drug plan with greater choice. Well, think about what the, the FDA, you know, the VA, you can run from it and go to some other kind of plan. You can't run from the FDA if it won't license the thing for production. So what happens? People now realize that they're in desperate shape, 
and they start making special pleas for compassionate exemptions from the restrictions. Well, suppose the FDA grants one. Why is it that the guy who has political connections should be able to use this particular thing, whereas everybody else who wants to adopt the same strategy is told, wait until you're dead, at which point the thing will come out onto the marketplace. So, you know, think of it this way. Um, Basically, if you can give a person an additional healthy year of life, for most people, it's worth several hundred thousand dollars in subjective value. That's the best we can figure out on equating, you know, satisfaction to dollars. So you introduce a drug two years later than it should be, you know, and there are a million people who could have benefited from it. This is a huge hit in terms of overall welfare, which probably dominates uh, the losses that come if one or two percent of the population is not there. So that's the first point. The second point is what's the right strategy for risky drugs? Well, what do I tell people when they ask me? I said, look, I'm not a physician, so I'm not going to tell you about drugs, but I could tell you something about drug types. And here's the first point. Uh, basically what happens is uh, strong drugs will often do wonderful things if you can tolerate them. But some people can't tolerate them. So what do you want to do? You want to start with a strong drug and see if it's going to make you sick to your stomach or have some other terrible side effect. And if it does, then you sadly conclude, I better ratchet down to something which is a little less potent. That could mean smaller dosages or it could mean different products or some mix of the two. Um, on the other hand, if you're one of the fortunate who can tolerate this without any kind of difficulties, this is a godsend because it means that you're now going to be more likely to extend life and to improve fitness and health, increase earnings. All sorts of wonderful things will start to happen to you under the circumstances. So the strategy is to do essentially that. What happens is the FDA looks around and it says, well, here's a drug. Some people really love it, but, you know, it's had some deaths. We're taking it off the market. At that point, you can't do the strategy. So let me give you an example of a drug on which I worked on some of the litigation. It's a drug called Resolent. I have no idea how this works, but it was a drug that dealt with diabetes. And it turned out for some people it was a godsend. And for other people, it killed them. Now, the moment you're aware of the, of the risk, you start to monitor people more closely. You know, it makes sense now. The, the higher the variation in outcome, the more sensible it is to figure out whether or not you're on the top or the bottom of that distribution. So you give them liver tests or whatever it is. And there's, when they banned it, the FDA was thinking about banning it, and they did ban it. I remember reading the testimony by some of the doctors who had prescribed this drug to their patients. And they said, basically, these people won't give you their drugs back. They won't even sell it to you. They will just hoard it as much as they can and use it for as long as they can after that ban is done. Because they will tell you that their lives have been transformed by the, for the better. They can get out of bed in the morning because they took this. And the FDA's attitude is we have another drug. It's lower risk, but it's also less potent, so it's got lower benefit. Why it is that the United States government should figure out how the risk-return ratio varies with severity of drugs and do this for all people simply escapes my can. And it's a kind of, at this point, bureaucratic arrogance that all people are alike. Therefore, since we know better than you, we don't have to worry about your variations. This is no more than the drug variation of saying, you know, in the socialist economy, one size fits all, right? So you get one size issue. Um, you really want to allow this variation, and you want to encourage people to take responsibility, and you want to encourage people to look at third-party websites to get information, and you want to encourage people to speak to doctors who are willing to make prudent adjustments with respect to benefit and cost. There's yeah. no way to avoid this risk, but there's an intelligent way to combat it. You know, the standard answer is that, you know, which I always find bewildering, but this is the standard answer. The standard answer is, yeah, well, people, true or all different, but we're all the same in the following sense. We're all ignorant. None of us are – only a handful of us are, are medical professionals, and therefore if we gave people the freedom to make their own decisions about the risk and return, too many people would take too much risk and there would be unnecessary death. And that argument ignores the fact that people in situations where death is imminent or risky tend to look for information either from doctors or those websites you're talking about or friends or all kinds of sources, and certainly our incentive to find those would be higher in a world where they where can make some choice. Yeah, where they could have a choice. Um, there is no question that when people, uh, my mother-in-law who died some years ago, she had myasthenia gravis. She was extremely resilient. She knew by the time she had had that disease, 
for 10 years as much about it as many of the physicians who were treating her. And that's true with people who often have chronic conditions. Uh, what happens is they have a very clear sense of what's being given to them. They know the symptoms to look to. They cooperate with their doctors. So that what happens is in chronic cases, it's a mistake to assume the ignorant passive model. People have a lot on the line all of a sudden become intelligent and active. And what we want to do is to incentivize that kind of behavior up and down the line and not to sort of solve this other situation. And this is the danger of the anecdote. Uh, you give me any particular drug or any therapy, uh, particularly for very old people, and you give it to a population of 10,000 or 100,000 or a million, they're going to be some dreadful screw-ups. If all you do is you look at the bottom tail, you can guarantee that the law of averages will make that big. But you can shift the distribution, and what you have to do is not only look at the bottom side of the tail, you have to look at the top side of the tail. And in overdose, I recall, I talked about some drug whose name, of course, always escapes me. And what happened is, you know, it was introduced, and modestly it seemed to give people relief against certain kinds of conditions. And what happened is you run some study, and you realize that if somebody took this drug with six shot glasses of alcohol, they could die. So you take it off the market. There's not been a single incident of anybody who's been stupid enough to mix potent drugs with alcohol. And in fact, what you tell anybody is if you're taking heavy medications, there's certain things you just don't want to take at all. One of them is, of course, alcohol or any other kind of drug. Another thing, by the way, is grapefruit juice. I don't know if you're aware of that. But it turns out that it seems to interfere with the uh, absorption of huge numbers of drugs. And so if you're having somebody who's uh, you know, on large numbers of meds, as many people in their advanced years are, tell them never to drink grapefruit juice. This is just, one of the many practical benefits of listening to this podcast. Uh, th yeah, there, well, there are thousands. I mean, you just but... look at the labels. And the other thing to tell everybody, no matter what medicines you take, always drink lots of water. Mm -hmm. Get that stuff through your system and keep flushing the stuff out. I mean, you know, and, and you know, knowing all these things makes everything else so much more efficient. The, the interesting thing, Russell, and I, I mean, I know you're running to the end of the show, but let me just mention one point. If you actually talk to people in the field about where the really big screw-ups come with drugs, okay, it, many more people die because they don't know how to manage their regimen when they become old, nearsighted, arthritic, and so forth. Sure. And you're trying to take... 12 different medications, each on different yep. schedules, each with different kinds of things you have to do. Can't eat with this one, have to eat with that one, and so forth. People just get confused and mistaken, and they make serious mistakes. One of the real advances, which I've discovered in talking to pharmaceutical times, um, is getting a one-a-day pill. Yeah. Because instead of having to do it four times, you do it one time, and the error that, that you have except with its application goes down hugely. And so if you were to ask me what I would want to do to reform the pharmaceutical industry, I would want to make sure that the last step in the delivery system is one that is systematically observed so as to make sure that stupid errors don't have people taking drugs in deadly combinations, each of which is beneficial if taken separately. Yeah, I mean, you know, or deadly if they're taken separately, but harmful or beneficial if they're taken in combination. It's a real kind of a, a, a thing. And so what people should worry about when they take care of their own family members is to see whether or not the pills and the dishes get taken in the right way in the right sequence. Otherwise, horrific things can start to happen to you. Well, we are almost out of time, but I want to, I want to close and ask you something um, sure. very cynical uh, yeah. and raise a really cynical question, which I've not heard among... Uh, folks uh, on really either side or any side of the political spectrum. I'm sure they're, they're out there, but I don't hear this often. Here's the issue. The standard view of those of us uh, such as yourself, uh, Sam Peltzman, who we interviewed earlier on these on related issues about the FDA's uh, uh, negative contribution to human health because of the delays and the impact on innovation and the impact on on people not getting access to life-saving drugs. We often argue that well, these are bureaucrats. They're they're worried about uh, an error of uh, this type one error of, of a drug out there that's that looks good but actually has this harm. The harm is visible, and they'll pay a political price for it. Whereas the other type of error of not allowing a drug, well, that drug's never seen, so we don't see the harm as much. And so there's a natural tendency for bureaucrats to uh, be overly cautious. Yes, That's right. a standard argument. Now, here, here, let's take a flip argument. Let's look at the other possibility, which it doesn't get enough attention. The other part is that, well, bureaucrats are kind of insulated from responsibility generally. 
uh, they don't have to bear the cost. Bureaucrats, especially politicians, no. But politicians are really good at at, shooing, at pushing responsibility over to bureaucrats, whether it's at the EPA or the FDA. And so the mistakes are made by this faceless bureaucracy that is we don't really have much access to. So these folks actually, one could argue, would be they take more risk. Now, they don't seem to do that. They do seem to take less risk. They do seem to be overly cautious. So let me give you an argument for why that is, the cynical argument. This is really cynical. The cynical argument is is that that the drug companies benefit from FDA regulation, which is puzzling. They don't seem to. They seem oh, it to keeps out ex- the, the exclusion of new rivals. Right. It creates this enormous fixed cost of compliance that can't be done by a startup. So the only thing you get are these giant, highly profitable pharmaceutical companies, and they are, in the language of, uh, of Bruce Yandel's uh, discussion of regulation and another podcast, they're the they're the bootleggers, the Baptists. Or the folks who say, oh, it's dangerous, so we need all these restrictions. The the drug companies wink, and they say, yeah, we want our drugs to be safe so that people have confidence in them, and that's why it's good to have a good, strong FDA. The net result, though, is a pretty strong political coalition for an overly zealous FDA, not because – you know they're worried about the the, the cost of, of an error, but simply because that's the way the political incentives um, run. This is an argument which, in principle, has validity. The question is its weight, and the argument is it's worth playing with fire if you're a large pharmaceutical company, because if your drug is already approved and there's a competitor coming down the road, if you could delay its entrance by a year or two, it will not only give you a patent monopoly, but it will give you a market monopoly through FDA regulation. That's the basic principle. Yep. I, I think that the reason. I used to believe it, and I certainly can't say that it is false, but I think it is less potent than it used to be. Here's the explanation that I would give. If you go a little bit too far, um, you're a large drug company. You just don't have drugs that are out in the market. You also have drugs that are sitting there on the runway. And so you don't know whether you're the guy who's in and trying to preserve a monopoly or whether you're the guy who's out trying to come in and break it. And you have to decide this over an entire portfolio. You also know that everything you've got out there is, is, is a wasting asset because they're all under patent. And so you've got to get this stuff moving quickly. And, and the, the piece of historical evidence which suggests that the, the companies know about the anti-competitive benefits, but that, that's not what the dominant motive is PDUFA, which is the Physician Drug Use of Fee Act of 1993, which has been renewed several times and is up for renewal right now. And this is what the drug companies do they will actually pay the FDA a user fee in order to get quicker expedition of the products coming into market. And the large industries, the farmers, all support this bill. Now, if they were really interested in slowing down the FDA, uh, they would not be paying money to speed it up. Now, what about the small guys? Well, what happens is the small guys, sometimes they go it alone. But there is something which large companies do, which they don't like to do, but they have to do, called in-licensing. But some guy goes out there in the field, and they've developed a chemical, and it's quite clear that this is going to be a a nice therapeutic, but they can't afford to do the clinical trials and so forth. So what they do is they assign the patent rights under some kind of sharing arrangement with a large company, a Pfizer, a Merck, an AstraZeneca, something of the sort. And the the thing that the, the large drug companies understand is when they pay for these licenses, it's a competitive market. It's pretty steep, right? And so what they do is most of the creative premium goes to the little guy, not to the big guy. They now look more like a, a pill manufacturer rather than a scientific researcher. And we know where the high rates of return are in that division. And what this means, in effect, is that so long as in-licensing is available, this strategy will not work to keep small guys out. Because no, what a right. small guy will do is find a big guy. They'll team up, and then they'll go through it. And they do compete for access. Yeah, they compete folks. for access by this. And the small guys come out very well in this marketplace. So I think in the end, if one looks at this, there is certainly a prospect. And it could never forget it. But sort of watching the way in which the market has worked, knowing the nature of the, of the fragile nature of all the franchises that have been approved, the dominant force, I think, is the more traditional explanation. Uh, it's more the Baptists and less the bootleggers, as it were, in your terminology. More the purists who are keeping this out. I have worked extensively with pharma as a consultant and with Pfizer on particular cases. You know, I have never heard anybody talk about that as being their dominant motivation, and particularly if you're working through trade associations, right? 
Well, um, they wouldn't talk about it. In they fact, wouldn't talk about it. They may what, not talk about it to me. But not, not only that, I, what, what I find interesting is when I have seen evidence of the um, the bootlegger and Baptist coalition at work, a lot of times the bootleggers don't even they're not even aware of it. They actually can convince themselves they're on the side of the of the good guys, the altruists. But the incentives are going to always push them to talk that way, but behave. Uh, I mean, there is that. Uh, I can't think of any particular case in terms of the uh, industry in which any pharmaceutical company of any size has been pushing hard for stronger FDA oversight. Uh, it, it, it just has not happened in this day. I, no, I, think I, think, I agree with that, and I think that's partly because I, it's I already... I think it's because where the equilibrium yeah. is, I'll give you a slightly... It's plenty uh, strong. A different version of the cynical argument. Let's suppose that the Baptists would like to have the level of inspection as 50, and the bootleggers, since they're trying to sell this stuff, want it down at 30, okay? Yeah. If you're at 40, the Baptists are going to be pushing to get it tougher, and the bootleggers are going to be pushing to get it less. Yeah, that's about where we are, probably. And that's my sense as to what the situation is. And there is no question that Sam Peltzman said in, in the good old days, you know, before the Kefauver Amendments, uh, this, you know, we're down at 20, and that was, in fact, one of the arguments that one heard. Uh, essentially, if the cost of compliance with quality regulations are higher on your competitor than on yourself, you may, in effect, play a game of differential increasing of rivals' cost. But these are very dangerous games to play. You're playing with fire, and the bootleggers know that, whereas the Baptists, they have a much more unambiguous stance. So this is an alliance which is, is, is never going to be overt. That would be suicidal. Correct. And even on a covert basis, it's going to be extremely fragile. I, I see no evidence whatsoever of it now. I, I think there's a much more different, and I'll end on this note, alliance out there. My own sense is that it's pretty clear that the folks who are constantly pushing for higher quality controls for the FDA and backing this will be trial lawyers. Because the moment you could create the perception that the FDA is a slovenly, a slow, or a laggard institution in protecting safety, it makes credible the tort suit as a backup remedy from which they benefit enormously. And that, so what happens is they have a kind of a strange position if you're playing this game of incentives. They want to push very hard to demand increases in the FDA, but they don't want them to happen. Because if they happen, then the drugs won't get on the market and there'll be nobody to sue. But they want to keep this constant state in which the FDA is under siege. And that is, of course, a much more accurate description of the current reality than the one in which you see pharmaceutical companies trying to raise standards to block out new entrants. Right? I mean, if you're trying to look around and see where the noise is coming from, I think that's a more a more accurate account. And there's huge dollars in potential tort liability. No, I think that's absolutely right. Where do you think the doctors are on this? If you, if you chat informally with friends who are doctors, you know, they'll often say, we've got to have the FDA because patients don't know anything. And, and I always point out that the reason they don't know anything is in the current world, they don't have an incentive to know anything. And I think Doctors are probably pretty uncomfortable with the world where they would be merely advisors rather than... Um... Um, doctors, they have very mixed incentives on this. Yeah. Um, look, one of the things that I will just mention is that doctors, in effect, hate the FDA in this sense. The FDA is not allowed to control the practice of medicine. But the line between research and medicine on drugs and practice on patients is not all that clear. And many times their research projects have been scotched. And I've been at many a session with many a doc who's looked at the FDA as the enemy. The other thing I think which is clear is that there is a huge level of unauthorized use of drugs. The FDA can't stop it because they can't tell people how to practice medicine, but they can tell the pharmaceutical companies that you can't advertise about it. And this leads to some really odd results because if a use is unauthorized, a drug company, if it knows that the drug is being used in this way, and virtually all cancer drugs are used this way, unauthorized. When you say unauthorized, you mean... For, I mean, it's authorized for use for colon cancer, but not authorized for use for breast cancer. Somebody says, what the hell, let's give it a try. Right? Sure. Um, what happens is you're not allowed to warn of side effects because that's an implicit acknowledgement that the drug has been approved for yeah. use. Right. So you develop, and you know, you like this point, a huge informal network amongst physicians as to side effects with respect to unauthorized use. That is, you not only have a system of bootleggers, and to use that term, but here you have this entire gray market that has grown up. And these are not small numbers. I've been told that the uh, many cancer drugs, the majority of its usage is, in fact, for unauthorized uses. It's out there for one condition. It's used to treat six different kinds of cancer. 
And so you just do the math, and you can see why it is that this will happen. So that we do have a kind of an underground economy, and the fact that it is not blown up in our face suggests that uh, the warning system of the FDA is is not all that essential. And let me put it in the simplest terms. Um, Anybody could warn. Essentially, when you start working these elaborate markets, which are very difficult, um, huge amounts of uses are not explicitly approved. And if they are not explicitly approved, um, then, in effect, information sources have to be generated privately. And if they are generated privately, what you then find out is that there is a different kind of world there. Okay. Well, I'm lucky, we're lucky we at least have the freedom to use for those unauthorized uses. I'm yes, surprised I mean, it hasn't you know, been... many a person has been saved. Uh, and what happens is if their use is unauthorized, the companies have no incentive to try to run millions of dollars worth of clinical trials. The doctors have no incentive to blow this up. So that basically it's a perfectly stable equilibrium. The FDA will not shut it down because they can't. Uh, and none of the uses will come back to the FDA for further approval. So there's this kind of shadow economy out there. Which is a sign that the, as it were, the above-board economy is not efficient, right? You, you don't have underworlds if, in fact, you have relatively unregulated markets. My guest today has been Richard Epstein, the James Parker Hall Distinguished Service Professor of Law at the University of Chicago and the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution. We've been talking about his book, Overdose, How Excessive Government Regulation Stifles Pharmaceutical Innovation, from Yale University Press. Richard, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Russ. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday. <music>